Today's scripture comes from Nehemiah 2, 11 through 18. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall, Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start by rebuilding. So they began this good work. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we're in the beginning a part of a series on Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem, trying to learn contemporary lessons from this ancient story. And uh, this week it occurred to me that <clears throat> I had neglected to do something that I think is intriguing and I hope you think is important. I haven't yet giving, given you the geographical location for all this activity. I haven't showed you anything about where it was and how it occurred. So today I want to do that. The first thing I want to show you is a map of the Persian Empire. That shows you how huge the Persian Empire was. <clears throat> See at the bottom of that line where it says Susa? That was the location where Nehemiah approached the king. From that location, he went all the way over to Jerusalem. Now, the trip to Jerusalem, depending on how you measure it, we don't know for sure because we don't have the road map, right? The trip to Jerusalem from Susa was probably 900 miles. So the next slide shows you actually two routes that were taken to Jerusalem. The first one was a return of Sheshbazar and um, Zerubbabel. The name just got cut off, but it's Zerubbabel, priest Zerubbabel. He went back in the earliest days to Jerusalem. Then Ezra and Nehemiah traveled to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah's route is the lower route. Uh, Zerubbabel is the higher route along the Euphrates River all the way up to Aleppo. That, again, was a 900-mile journey. So I set that up for today's reading because traveling a 900-mile journey back then meant you were on foot or on horseback. There were no gas stations, no rest stops, no hotels, just hospital or hospitable or inhospitable people. It was a long journey, three to four days. I'm sorry, three to four months. Yeah. <laughs> got to got to remember where I'm living now. So the distance, for instance, just if you were to Google this, you know, on your Google Maps or something, the distance would be roughly between Bloomington and somewhere in central Florida. That's how far they traveled by foot and horseback. 
Why is that important? Well, commitment, right? It's a big trip. But there's another reason it's important, I think, to this text. When they arrived, as you heard from the reading, Nehemiah rested for three days. It's like, I got an important job in front of me. I got to get busy right now. No, I have to rest right now. I got to prepare for the work that's ahead of me. So I said we're going to try to extract contemporary messages from an ancient book. Let me just stop right there. Remember, Nehemiah didn't rush ahead to begin with. He was a patient man. He waited for probably three months before he approached the king, once God had given him the vision. He's patient enough to understand that you have to wait for the right timing. He's wise enough to know that you need rest. And the application is this. Are we? Are we patient enough to wait? Are we wise enough to know that we need rest? You know, on one occasion, Jesus was busy about the ministry with his disciples. And the Bible tells us that they were so busy that there were so many people coming and going that they did not even have an opportunity to stop and eat. And at the end of that busy day, or perhaps days, Jesus came to his disciples and he said, we need to get away. Come with me to a quiet place and rest. So they got in a boat and they started across the lake. Now imagine crossing that lake. There was no motor, no traffic surrounding the lake, no motorized vehicles of any sort, just a swish swish of the oars in the middle of a great lake. I don't know how long it took them to get across the lake, but knowing Jesus' strategy, they weren't in a hurry. They were taking their time. When they got to the other side of the lake, there was a crowd waiting for them because they'd heard about it. It was there that Jesus fed the 5,000. He got back to work. So did his disciples but only after rest. My question is, when do we rest? Think about your day. Think about your week. Where is your rest? Where is your Sabbath? I recall uh, telling a story one time when my kids were little. I would get done at the end of a long day. And I would almost dread going home because I was going home to another job. <laughs> Little kids. Of course, being as self-centered as I was, I wasn't thinking about the fact that my wife was going home to little kids too. But I, I, that's what I was thinking. I got to go home now. I got another job. And I love my kids more in life itself. But I was tired. And so I started this little habit that nobody knew about. I would leave this parking lot, and I would drive to Bryan Park. I didn't go to the pool. I just went to the parking lot. And I parked my car, 
and I dropped the seat all the way back, and I just laid there for 10 minutes. Then I popped the seat up, and I go home. I, I felt like it was a little mini Sabbath. I thought I needed it. I have to admit I'm the worst about taking Sabbath, but I challenge us to ask whether or not we're doing it for ourselves. Where is your place? Where is your time? When do you do it? When do you rest? You know, uh, one other analogy about rest and its importance. You know one of the reasons you are as safe as you are on an interstate highway? Because there's a law that those guys in 18-wheelers that are whizzing down the road, they have to rest. They have to log the hours they stop driving and rest, or they will be in trouble. It's good for them, and it's good for us. And rest is good for you and for others. So when do you rest? Sabbath. Second thing I notice in this text, not only did Nehemiah patiently wait, he rested. When his resting was over, he assessed the situation. Sometimes we think grand plans are not necessarily or big visions the same as careful preparation, but Nehemiah didn't get that mixed up. He knew that careful preparation was important to a grand plan. So he assessed the situation. He inspected the wall, the wall that had fallen, and he did it very secretly or maybe discreetly. He left in the middle of the night when everybody else was asleep and he only had one mount, apparently, so as not to make too much noise. Some speculate that it was not a horse because a horse makes more noise than a donkey, snorting and hoofing. He took the donkey, let's assume, Only he on a donkey, and they walked the perimeter of the wall. Now, what seems to be true is that Nehemiah didn't go the entire perimeter of the wall. The wall might have been 1.5 to 2 miles long around Jerusalem in its original form. It appears that he only investigated the southern portion of the wall, but he investigated. And also, he said before he went out to investigate the wall. I told no one. Again, discretion. Except a few trusted people. We don't even know who those trusted people were. They might actually have been guides that knew the area well. And he might not have told them what he was doing. But he kept it secret. And he took the investigatory trip. At one point, the text describes rocks or stones that had just fallen down and there were so many of them that they couldn't even pass by a certain area. That could be one of two things or both. It could be when the wall was destroyed by the enemy, they literally rolled the big stones down the hill to make a point. It's over. Could be just by the weight of gravity. And over time, it had been a very long time, the stones had continued to roll down. But there they were, looking at a valley of stones and trying to understand how to rebuild. As far as we know, Nehemiah was not a stonemason. 
bricklayer or anything else. He just knew they needed a wall. So what did he do? He enlisted people. He asked people to come alongside him and make this thing happen. I've got a vision. I can't do it by myself. Come with me. He called them to follow as a leader. You know how he did it? He started out by saying, we are in trouble. Let us rebuild the wall. If you take a look at the text of Nehemiah, you will see repeatedly, we and us. Seems like it was never about him. It wasn't the cult of personality. God forbid it should ever be that, especially for people in ministry, which often, unfortunately, it is. It shouldn't be that. Nehemiah seemed to know it can't be that if he's going to be successful in the work of God. So he says, we got to rebuild this wall. We're in trouble. Of course, the trouble that they're in, you can see immediately, is it's an unprotected city. But there was something else that he pointed to as trouble. He used the word disgrace. This wall all falling down around us, it's shameful. It's disgraceful. Our community has been shattered. So let's get to work. The people's response after hearing Nehemiah was, yeah, let's do it. But you know one of the ways he got him to do it? By sharing his story. He said, the gracious hand of the Lord was upon me. We don't know how much of the story he shared, but we know the story according to the the early chapter in Nehemiah, he went before the king. First, he got the vision. Then he waited. Then he went before the king. And then the king said, yes, go do it. Perhaps Nehemiah told them the whole story. Perhaps he said, Hanani came from your location in Jerusalem, reported back to me what the disarray was, and I was heartbroken. I wept. I fasted for days. Then I went to the king. Maybe he told him the whole story. I like to think he did. He was helping them to understand his story and his vision. He didn't shy away from the fact that God had led him, but he didn't suggest that he was the only one. He shared the story, and it gave them confidence for the work to begin. That's a short story. Verses 11 through 18. Now let's think about the story as it relates to us. So I... Before I give the application, I want to say, Nehemiah was rebuilding a wall, yeah. But that was just part of it. He was rebuilding a community. He was bringing people together. So where are we as the community of Christ? In this church? And in other parts, where are we? How are we doing as a community? Well, as Nehemiah gave an assessment and said, we're in trouble, allow me to make a similar application, may I? 
we become divided by things like mandates and politics. Some people think a mask mandate that we followed is an infringement on personal liberty. Others think a mask mandate that we followed was our responsibility to our neighbors. Some people think that the mask mandate that we followed was part of a larger conspiracy to put us all under the control of the government. Some looked at the mask mandate and said, we're simply following science. Why wouldn't you do that? And others said the mask mandate puts science before God. So my friends, I'm just being honest. I've heard every single one of those, plus more, from this congregation. And it's been divisive. It has. I heard about a pastor who said that um, they got a call at the church that said, here's the direction that we think you ought to take, and you ought to get up in the pulpit and proclaim it, and if you don't do that, you're not following the gospel. It was about mask mandates. The next call from somebody on the other side. This is about the, wait, wait. This is about the gospel? We become divided into political affiliations across the board. It's worse than it's ever been before, at least in my lifetime. We argue vehemently over whether or not inflation is caused by the economic policies of the current administration or about Russia and its war. We ask whether or not the crisis at the border is the fault of the current administration or the previous administration or all administrations and what to do about it. We argue over whether government should be more involved in social programs or less. Whether gun control would solve our problems in violence or not. So let me hasten to add something. These are fascinating topics. Really important. Compelling things to debate. But when debate becomes uncharitable dialogue, and debate about any number of issues like this divide us, there's a problem. There's a problem. We're letting things that are not essential become so essential that they divide us. So maybe one of the things to do as we go forward and do our best to rebuild community is to ask this one question about almost every issue. What does this have to do with the good news concerning Jesus? What does this have to do with the good news concerning Jesus? If it has virtually nothing to do with the good news concerning Jesus, it's an interesting debate. It should not divide us. 
So where do we go from here? How do we rebuild? We, we need to rebuild community. I'm convinced of that. I, I heard of a podcast that Tim Keller was a part of in which he said that after all this turmoil is over, I'm not sure it is, but anyway, after all this turmoil is over, every church will be a church plant. What did he mean by that? He meant that every church has to start over. Every church has to retool, and that's what's important because we've become so divided. Here's a number of things that I think we need to do that we ought to do as we think about community together. One is that we ought to acknowledge we can't be static. We have to have an honest assessment, and we need to change. We need to change some things, and we need to change our attitude. And I I want you to know that our leadership team is actually, actually looking at new ways to rebuild our community. We're thinking about it, praying about it. We're ready to not be static. And I promise you this, that in the future, this summer, I will unveil some of those plans to you about things that we can do to rebuild community. And I look forward to that, but I guess like Nehemiah, not yet. (laughs) Second thing we need if we're going to rebuild community is we need one another. We cannot follow Jesus Christ alone. You cannot follow Jesus Christ alone. Because Christ called you into community. He didn't just say, Bob, I like you a lot. I'm going to save you from eternal damnation. Sign the paper. I've got a contract for you. He said, Bob, I want to redeem you. And the way I'm going to redeem you is I'm going to call you into community. And in the life of community, you're going to be shaped in ways you can never shape yourself. And in community, you will grow into the character of me, your Lord and Savior. We need one another. We can't forget that. Third, we have to acknowledge, as we try to think about what rebuilding looks like, we have to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers, and we never will. Nehemiah didn't have all the answers. Ezra didn't have all the answers. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them. None of them had all the answers. Nor do we, nor will we. But we can't have the right heart to unite around the things that are important to be a community that follows God. Fourth thing is, we're going to get discouraged and tired in the rebuilding of community, just like they did. We'll get to that in this book. There was opposition from without and opposition from within, and that's true of every organization when you try your best to reshape it and reform community, and what does it look like? We'll get tired and we'll get discouraged, but that's okay. We also will face uh, opposition, and that's okay. But, my friends, here's the bottom line. We're the community of Christ. 
I love our name. Christ's Community Church. We are the community that is called to say, Jesus is Lord. It's the king of the universe. We're called to allegiance to Christ, not allegiance to everything else. We're called to be a subculture, a group of people who are following Christ in a way that other people do not. Not a group of people who are shouting and condemning the world and telling them follow like we're following a community that's a parallel community in this present world following Jesus Christ. People look at us and say, my, they are different. And then, and almost only then, will they be open to the good news about Jesus Christ. We can be that kind of community, my friends. It's easy to get off track, but we can be that. Here's the reality of Christ communities all over the world. From the earliest days right up until now, it's this truth. God loves us, and he loved us when we were not worthy in any manner of his love. God called us to follow him even though we didn't deserve it. And so, our mission is to love one another and love our world the way God did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And how, said Jesus, will they know about this? They'll know about it when they look at you and realize you love one another and you share your love with the world. Almost sounds too simple, doesn't it? Not necessarily simple, but it's the greatest news on earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us, even when we weren't searching you. Even before we loved you, you loved us with an unfailing love. And even when we fail, you continue to love us with an unfailing love. And even though as individuals, we, like Peter, basically deny you with the way we speak and live and And as a church, we often do the same thing. But you continue to love us. Lord, help us to understand the depth of your love so that we can just willingly and almost automatically share that love with our our world. Because if we've received it, we're just wrong to keep it. We, we can't keep it, as the Scripture says, under a bushel, this light. We've got to let it shine to the world. So we pray, Lord, that you will help us to let our light shine. And that you will help us to depend not on our own efforts, because we'll never get it right. We'll never have all the answers. 
but will depend on your sovereign care to advance Christ's community. We trust ourselves to you, our great God, in whose name we pray. Amen.